I'm delighted to be here on this very historic occasion. It's a great initiative to start uh, this discussion and this dialogue about an Asian lens or an Indian lens. The question that uh, often comes up is, are we all the same? Are we different? And this is a politically loaded issue. It's fashionable to say we're all the same. But I think what we really mean is we are equal in rights. But that doesn't mean we are the same. We, are, we have many similarities, but we also have many differences. I mean, you could argue that a, an apple is, has many similarities with an orange because they have vitamins, they are round, they have a certain flavor, they, have, they grow on trees, but they're also very different. And you could say this about any two objects, that there are similarities, there are dissimilarities. The starting point of understanding the human difference is geography. Geography is different. Nature has made deserts, made forests, made mountains, made oceans. And this inherent difference in geography means there are different climates, different things grow, and there are different lifestyles in different parts of the world. So human beings over thousands of years have turned out to, be, have, to have different eating habits, different bodies, different cultures. And also these diverse geographies have had different histories. The, the, the past is not the same in, in each place. So dif, the, the, the idea of difference is very innate. It's very natural. And therefore, being different is a normal state. And trying to be same has many problems. Because if you say we should be the same, uh, should you be the same as me? Or should I be the same as you? Who gets to define the universal idea of sameness? Who is the role model? Who is the gold standard that everybody else must comply with? Unfortunately, power has tended to de define what kind of universalism the world adopts. And I call this Western universalism simply because the West has had the power over the discourse, over language, over laws, you know, over international treaties. So the Western way of thinking, which is heavily loaded with Judeo-Christianity, has tended to become the universal by default. And it's not because of merit, it's not because China didn't have great ideas or the Arabs didn't have great ideas or Indians or Africans. It just turned out to be the result of a power structure. So what we now have is a unique opportunity and also a, 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 an imperative that we should have all the civilizations have a seat at the table so they can discuss and debate and argue and respect each other as equals. So the, this, this idea of a dialogue of civilizations where rather than the West being sort of the gold standard that others should mimic and digest, get digested into the West in some way uh, has to be replaced with the idea that we interact with each other and we interact with the West as equals, we interact amongst each other without the West being present as equals. So this, this is to me an amazing uh, new phenomenon that uh, uh, that new in the sense that over the last few hundred years it was closed. Before that it was, it was the case. What we are now talk, calling you know, the Indian lens interacting with the Turkish lens or the Chinese lens interacting with some lens, these things were happening all the time. And they were closed, this open architecture of world civilizations got closed with the rise of the West. And, and we need to reopen it. You know, at one point in time, we had Nalanda and many universities like that. And these were the centers of liberal arts for the whole world. So India was the birthplace of so many civilizations. China, Japan, Southeast Asia, you know, the whole Thailand, Cam Cambodia, Vietnam, they got so much out of India. And Indian, the Indian civilization went from 
Afghanistan to Bali, and also beyond Afghanistan to the Middle East, because so much of the Arab knowledge systems was based on Indian mathematics, Indian astronomy. Indian doctors were well known in Middle East hospitals, that's chronicled. So much of the Indian knowledge went via the Arabs and then got retranslated further into Latin and European languages. So Europe got a lot of the knowledge from the, West, from, the, from the Middle East, but actually the Middle East got that knowledge from India and China. So this has to be rediscovered and understood. We need to understand the story of who we are, be it the physical evidence, archaeological evidence of Dwarka and Indus, Saraswati, Harappan civilization, be it the story of yoga and the, the whole texts of uh, various spiritual traditions, be it the inner sciences which are now very much uh, in vogue in the form of cognitive science and neurosciences. A lot of Buddhism is being used to form, reformulate and make breakthroughs in Western neurosciences and cognitive sciences. So we need to re rediscover all that so that it's not selectively plucked out of context and utilized in a certain way and reformulated, but the original ideas are there and the rest of the ecosystem, because each of these ideas, each of these terms, each of these traditions is by itself a huge ecosystem and you do harm when you take it out of context, when you remove the soil and you try to plant it on some other soil and forget the original context and ecosystem that was part of it. So this is all, all the kind of stuff I'm hoping this wonderful university program will get to do, a kind of a revival of what Nalanda used to be. And Nalanda was one of 20 Vihars in Bihar alone. Bihar comes from Vihar, and Vihar is institution of learning. And places like Nalanda were like today's Harvard or MIT or Princeton. This is where people came from all over Asia to uh, the, the cream of their students would be sent to learn all this stuff and, and bring it back. There was never an Indian army that went out to China or Japan or other places to impose it on them. Never a, an attempt to put governors and collect taxes from them or to convert them to an Indian religion or to uh, you know, uh, change their language or sense of identity. Uh, they did adopt Buddhism but they adopted it because they wanted it. It's, it's, that it's some kind of a knowledge transfer that they wanted. The receiving side, the recipient in this exchange wanted to pull this knowledge in. It's not the exporter who wanted to push it on them and force it on them or try to evangelize or convert them. So this is itself a huge story of India's role as the mother of Asian civilizations and uh, the, the peaceful nature of this. And this transfer of Buddhism was not just a kind of spiritual tradition a lot of mathematics went, astronomy went, and medicine went, and agricultural ideas went, a lot of culture went, uh, these martial arts went uh, as part of this. So the trade of civilizations exchanging with each other is an old story, and this has to be revived and put into our consciousness so that the next generation knows who we are, that we've had a lot of positive contributions to make in the world, and so when we are sitting in competition with other people, we should not think that they are the ones who will teach us because they have always uh, are the ones who have been teaching us in the past. They should know that our forefathers were very creative, very innovative, and we can be like that. We can compete in the world on par with any other civilization. They will also learn to cooperate. They will also learn to respect others. They will also learn that it is a two-way street and everybody has their advantages and so we ought to learn in harmony from one another. One of the things that I would like to uh, sort of uh, put out on the table for consideration 
is that it's very important to face the controversies that are bound to come up with a program like this. Anything to do with identity has an influence on modern politics and what you're going to say about my past has, has a lot to do with whether I like it or not and who are my ancestors, friends and foes, all that comes out. And so this, in this very dynamic, political, vibrant system that we have in India, there is a tendency for political forces to co-opt uh, the, the study of history and the study of civilizations. It, it would be very important to resist that and to keep the intellectual discourse intellectual, let the academic scholars and the you know, different kinds of scholars do their job and not let uh, political interference come in of any side. Because right now one of the problems we have is that a lot of the discourse in India about India itself and about other places has been controlled by uh, forces, political forces of what's politically correct and what we ought to do to help one community or another community. That means that the real truth doesn't come out and it, it's sort of politically nuanced. So I would uh, hope that the, the, the keepers of this project are able to resist that and in fact rather than closing certain kinds of discourses or voices on the grounds of political correctness, they can say, well, let's open it up. And if somebody has a point of view that the rest don't like, well, they can rebuttal it. But in the spirit of free, th free thinking, uh, there should be a minimum censorship and a maximum free market of ideas. So I wish you well. I think it's a fantastic program. I'm delighted to be invited to be a part of this and uh, look forward to the journey together. Thank you.